This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. Yes, it's another episode of the Doctor Who Podcast, episode 293 to be precise. What's that you say? We've been away for a little while? Yes, Michelle, it does feel like it's been a long time here. There's a heck of a lot of dust in the camper van. It doesn't look like Trevor's done anything in the last two years, does it? I'm, I'm absolutely certain that it was his turn on the chore chart well. to uh, keep track of the dust on the, on the camper van. But you know, I mean, you know, he kind of comes and goes. Well, it would make absolutely no difference whether it was his turn on the roster or not, because frankly, it always looked as filthy, regardless of whether his name was on the list or not. <laughs> but uh, but yes, it is strange, I have to say, to be recording without a Trevor. Uh, as, you know, I mean, not only is it just, you know, doesn't feel quite right, but the, the lights don't seem to be working properly. There seems to be some kind of... What's that inner inner I'm having I'm having a hard time hearing you, James. Are you there? You you can hear that too. Have we got company? Who who who's there? Company? Who's which? What company? Did did you invite company? This is unexpected. Hey everybody, welcome to the very first episode of Who and Company. I'm Brent. And I'm Drew, and we're kicking this whole thing off with our review of the long-lost and recently animated Power of the Daleks, with some, well, very familiar guests that you just heard. After a long time away, we're honored to have with us from the Doctor Who podcast, Michelle and James. Welcome back, guys. Oh, thank you. Welcome, welcome. Hello. I don't know, do you, do you suppose they even remember who we are? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think that as far as uh, Doctor Who podcasters are concerned, you, you probably remembered and well thought of. Well, it's very kind of you to say so. Um, I, I think all, all we seem to remember, all I remember anyway, is um, one, arguing with Trevor, and two, going through lots of emails thinking, right, okay, the listeners, we, we don't have any listeners who agree with us, not, not one, um, <laughs> And having to plan episodes about explaining our opinions and views. So, yes, <laughs> good to be back. So, Michelle, uh, how have you been? What's What's been going on there? Oh, I've been good. I can't believe, in one sense, I can't believe it's been as long as it was. I was telling you guys when we first started, I was fine until James come on the, came on the line. And then I got all overcome. <laughs> it's like, oh, my goodness, my friends are back. It's just Not the that eff- you guys aren't my friends, too. It's just the effect I have on women, <laughs> Michelle. That's all it is. <laughs> Well, hey, hey. <laughs> no, it's been, it's been, I've been busy, busy, busy. And we, you know, we love doing the podcast, but one of the main reasons that it discontinued is that life just continues to be, to be busy and there's all kinds of fulfilling things to pursue on the way. But yes, uh, there is definitely a hole that, that doesn't get filled when you aren't talking with your friends once a week for the podcast. James, how about you? 
Uh, yeah, um, probably not as deep or melancholic as that. I've been very busy, um, so I have to say, although it was uh, it was a huge, huge decision uh, to end the podcast uh, years and years ago, um, I, I've never regretted it, um, and, and so much so that this really is the first time I've got back behind a microphone since episode two hundred and ninety-two of the DWP, and uh, as, as well, I was explaining off air just before we um, started recording. Um, I honestly could not remember how to set a microphone up or what programs I needed to open. Audacity spent ages opening on my desktop, almost as if it were to say, are you sure? Are you sure you want this program open now? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, been watching Doctor Who, um, been very, very keen on um, keeping abreast with the output from Big Finish. Uh, but I have to say, it has been um, a real relief not having to watch doctor who thinking i'm gonna to have to speak about it soon after so yeah and, and and in that context thanks very much brent for inviting me back onto a podcast <laughs> well in the last year even if you did have the podcast it wouldn't have been much doctor who to speak of no that's true that's true and uh, i i have to say that i think that was a it's a massive oversight i don't know what they were thinking why would you have one of your top three earners as the bbc off air for 12 months you know it just doesn't make any kind of sense economically or um you know in a way of keeping the fans happy it's uh it's been disappointing but one one good thing has come out of it and that's that uh, we, we've seen our first fully animated missing episode uh, in, in Parada Daleks so I'm, I'm curious I'm assuming everyone here has actually watched Power of the Daleks Right, I mean, we've 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 all uh, <laughs> not the original. We've all we've all pre- at least at least the animated. We've all prepared for this podcast, correct? Well, so Michelle, you said not the not the original, of course, but um, I am curious as to if this is the first time you have been exposed to this episode. No. Uh, now, if you had wa- if you had listened to every episode of the Doctor Who podcast, you'd know that Ian and I actually reviewed the. Um, um, the reconstruction version of Power of the Daleks at one point. So, so yeah, I had uh, had the chance to actually. I think I've listened to it and watched the reconstruction, and now the opportunity to watch the animated version. So, about as much Power of the Daleks as you can do. Don't know if I've ever read the novel though. Don't don't think so. Is there the not? Is this one of the ones that's novelized? Oh yeah, yeah I think John Peel did it, didn't he? Okay, yeah. okay, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I haven't gotten slightly to, uh, extended to that one version. Yet. It wasn't quite a novelization. It was much more of a. Well, it was an expanded version of the story, so not not so much a, a regular target thing there. But I, I did find it interesting there for Michelle um, a, a admonishing uh, Drew <laughs> for not having I, listened I'm, I'm to teasing, a particular episode of a podcast that we recorded three and a half years ago. <laughs> yes, but these are Doctor Who fans. <laughs> oh, we are, are we? Well, prove it. Uh, <laughs> no, no, yeah, we we did. I, I, this one, uh, actually, I... I feel a particular connection to because of that because we had the chance to look at it uh, a few years ago having said that i didn't go back and listen i can't remember exactly what we said except that i remember i do think ian and i were both very favorable about it when we talked about it and i i wish i had had the time to go back and rewatch the reconstruction compared to the animated version because uh, i'm curious about which i preferred um i wanted to do that too and i couldn't find <laughs> yeah <one>. uh <laughs> Yeah, what it is missing. Well, I assume, James, that you had, um, you said you, you did read the the novel? 
Yeah, I, I, I know this story. Um, I, I listened to the audio, the soundtrack when it was available. This was one of the cassettes that was released here in the UK many, many years ago with Linkin narration from Tom Baker. And it was it was really, really good. I, I loved it. I mean, there's this kind of ethos, isn't there, uh, that surrounds both Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks, thinking that they are, you know, incredible, seminal stories from from Troughton's era and I, I guess that's true in a way but uh, I, it was good to be able to revisit the story in a slightly different way this time um, but certainly I was I was very familiar with it I had read the book uh, many many years ago listen listen to the soundtrack and again I think they re-recorded the narration for a future release um, along with Evil of the Daleks in a special uh, tin um, that was released again. I, I must have been ten, fifteen years ago. Well, what am I talking about? It must be nearly twenty years ago now. I'm much older <laughs> than that. But yeah, good. It's, it's a wonderful story, and uh, I, I still love it. So, what'd you think of the animation? Uh, it, it's weird, isn't it? Because I, I, I find, I find that there are two points that I focus on about this release, and it's they're very different i mean if you look at it purely from the story point of view then i think i could probably be exceptionally brief and say it's one of my favorite Troughton stories i love it i've always loved it i know what's happening next i'm familiar with the characters i think it's great but if you look at it in terms of bringing a new kind of way of enjoying the story to fans through animation then i think that's slightly different um, i think first of all you have to kind of take it that we now assume Philip Morris really hasn't found <laughs> Power of the Daleks, <laughs> uh, the original version, um, and that's disappointing. Um, but again, I, I think in order for Rory, uh, when this release was announced, um, it, it was met by just as much and just as strong as reaction saying, right, okay, we now know that uh, we're not going to get Power of the Daleks in its original form on DVD released anytime soon. So it's kind of mixed feelings there. Um, but the, the actual animation itself, um, I'm not a connoisseur of animation. I know there are fans out there, podcasts even, who sit there and compare the techniques used for the invasion animation, the, the two episodes that were animated there, and will compare it. Um, and I don't really understand the difference, and I don't care about it that much. I just really, really enjoyed watching it through a different medium. Is, is, is it... Is it ever going to be the same as having the original thing? No, but it is a brilliant release, and I'm so pleased that BBC or whoever it was who commissioned it went ahead, pushed it forwards, and you know, it's it's it will be sitting on my shelf when the uh, the color version arrives on a uh, on Blu-ray. Well, in a very short period of time now. Did you watch the color version that we? No. Um... No, I've, okay. I've been saving it. I've been saving that one. Um, I, I bought it, I think, um, in pretty much the same kind of speed as everyone else downloaded Enemy of the World and Web of Fear when they were released on iTunes. I just bought it from the BBC store and mm -hmm. watched it. I, I tried to tried to leave a little gap between the episodes. I do think the 60s stories and most of the 70s are watched best just once a week rather than in one big long block. Uh, but I did, did have real difficulty restraining myself this time but i usually you know, generally got a couple of days in between episodes um but the color version no um it, it's kind of weird I'm, I'm not too sure how to feel about the color version and it's um you know the, the original version was never going to be color so again it's a slight 
difference, which um, I don't really know how I'm going to feel about until I've seen it. But uh, have, have have you seen it yet? Did you download it? Well, I, I ended up um, watching some of them as they aired on BBC America here and, and did download all of them. And I didn't realize, though, that when I purchased the download, I would get both the black and white and the color, which which, which was interesting. Oh. I um, um, So on the one hand, like you, I watched it with at least a week in between each episode, in fact, and then a couple of weeks in between some because I got behind. Uh, I didn't get a chance to see it in the theater, and it was in the film theaters here. Was It, it did in England, too, didn't it? No. Nah, no. Nah, ne- oh, really? Nah, ne- never hit the cinema screens here, unfortunately. I was very jealous. Did you guys get a chance to see it in the theater? I did. Uh, it, it was here in uh, in Raleigh, where I'm from, in North Carolina, and, and um, there it, okay, compared to the 50th anniversary, which was like you couldn't find a seat, it was packed. This was a very small crowd, maybe 10 people, but every, oh, that's too they bad. were still enthusiastic, and um, it, it was it was really fun. Uh, a lot of people laughed. They were into it, you know, especially with Trouton playing the recorder, tapping his feet and acting silly and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was really cool that there was a slideshow trivia before it started uh, about Power of the Daleks. Um, so that was different. Uh, huh. The sound, the sound was incredible. Um, Mark Ayers is amazing, and um, hmm. just the theme, the the groaning of the TARDIS, like it swirled around the entire theater, like the rumble of the TARDIS. It was, it, hmm. it all sounded really great, uh, surround sound and everything. Um, and it, like you were saying, James, it was, it, in the theater, it was um, an omnibus format, so there it was. It's really sort of hard to watch six parts in the 60s all together as one yeah. big, long movie. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree entirely. Lose, yeah. yeah, you, you kind of lose focus a bit towards the end, but uh, but yeah, I had a great time. It's it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think certainly if you look at Doctor Who over the years and, and, and how its production has changed, it really does reflect the the way we watch television uh, as well and the way that that has evolved in itself. And... Yeah, so much so that you know a lot of the early stories now, you know, they ended in a cliffhanger, and and, and rather than just kind of repeat that at the beginning of the following episode, the actors actually play it out again um, because there was absolutely no real intention or, or expectation um, for viewers to go back and examine this in as much forensic detail as, as, as fans do now. But I, I find it fascinating just looking at the way, the pace of the story. And the, the thing that really irks me, I mean, again, you know, lots of things really irk me about Doctor Who and Doctor Who fans, <laughs> but but I, I really dislike people reviewing a six, seven-part episode, possibly even a, Tim Baker, a Tom Baker story or an early John Pertwee story, and then say, oh, it could have been done in three episodes. And it's like, what? You completely missed the context, <laughs> right. you know. And, you know, and until you sit there and force yourself to watch the story in the way the audience would have watched it back in the day then i don't think you really have much of a right to comment on its running length or its pace and um i I think that's true very much so for the uh for the 60s uh, era of doctor who but um but i also remember again sitting in a, a theater um shortly after web and enemy had been rediscovered and i watched the whole lot it was a marathon thing um started off at about half past nine finished early evening um and it was moderated by toby uh Hadoke. we had some um cast there ralph watson was there 
and it was a heck of a day but I would not have wanted that to have been my first experience of watching those two stories I wanted to take my time really drag it out and uh, always gave myself something to look forward to because I never thought I was gonna you know see old or new old Doctor Who <laughs> if that makes sense <laughs> and um, I, I tried to take a similar approach uh, with Power of the Daleks, even though it is slightly different, it being animated. I wanted to see it in the theater, but uh, the air date in Greensboro, where I live, uh, was on the same day as I was coming back from Long Island Who in New York and couldn't make it. So I watched it um, a day apart, each episode a day apart, over the course of essentially six days a week. Um, and it was my first exposure to that story. I hadn't read it. I hadn't listened to the reconstructions. Um, I, I, I didn't know what was going to happen at all. What, and it, what'd you think? I, okay. So here's the thing. Well, can I guess? Sorry to interrupt. Please, Sorry. We used to please. interrupt all the time here, but given what No, you... no, no, no. Listen, <laughs> don't now you're apologizing for interrupting. Just interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah. That, that's really, really, you know, alien to me, I have to say. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> But the, the the fact that you sat there and watched it for the very first time, a day apart, and it was animated, can I venture a view <laughs> or an opinion to say that you may be a slightly, you may have been slightly confused as to what all the fuss was about by the time you got to the end, or uh, did you really love it? And I've just got that completely wrong. So, so let me preface what I'm uh, my response by saying I don't like Dalek stories. <laughs> Right. Uh, <laughs> um, in general, I usually don't like a Dalek story, and um, having a an a fully animated, not being able to see the characters and their physical responses, and uh, you know nothing against it being in black and white. With all that in mind, I really enjoyed it. In uh, fact, <laughs> it was okay. very difficult for me to wait that time between the last couple of episodes, I wanted to finish it up huh. right then and there um, because I was enjoying it. And uh, yeah, no, I, I get what the fuss was about. Oh, and great. it, it great. made me uh, really ache for the fact that we probably will, I'll never see it in its mm. entirety of in actual footage uh, because I think, I think it's actually quite an excellent film and, and the yeah. made me rethink and better understand what audiences at that time felt about the Daleks. It's not something that a relatively new, uh, I'm a, I'm relatively new. 96 is when I got into Doctor Who. So the Daleks were never, I was never young enough to be afraid of the Daleks. Mm. Um, so to see them on the screen be sneaky and manipulative and not know what was going to happen and silently glide across the floors and make their way and infiltrate this base. I I was genuinely impressed with the story. So so for you, would you have said the Daleks outshone a new doctor? Um that is a very interesting question. <laughs> I have to say something. Uh, I you know, you were saying earlier, James, related to what you just asked, Drew. A, a lot of people say that Troughton didn't quite hit his portrayal mm. of the Doctor in, until the second episode of uh, Underwater Menace. But I have to disagree. I think he hit the ground running right out of the gate. 
and all the silly business with the recorder and the playing dumb with everyone. I'm, I know he perfected it later, but he just seemed like the doctor from the start to me. Yeah, I think there's a difference, isn't there, between him being the doctor, because I don't think that's in any question, and I never question that. No, I don't think even from the very first time I listened to the audio. Um, I think that's clear, but I think it almost certainly is correct to say that Troughton didn't know how to play or approach the role initially at first and therefore he just thought I'm going to shroud my performance in mystery till I've got a slightly better idea Um, and and I would probably go as far as to say that you didn't really get the established second doctor until the moon base Um, you know even in the underwater menace I mean you you begin to recognize some of the mannerisms and the facial expressions that become commonplace later on uh, in the era but uh, but power of the Daleks in particular and again this is kind of the reason why I, I interrupted you so rudely earlier drew um but uh, <laughs> it, it's because people watch it expecting to see the second doctor that they've seen or they, they listen to it expecting to hear the second doctor that they know and they love from the other stories and he's not there and he's not there at all i don't think the doctor is clearly there but you don't get that familiar familiar portrayal even in his dialogue with his companions he doesn't do anything to reassure his companions and so you know the audience's window who are clearly ben and polly here uh, and and um you know they're just completely thrown um by this new individual they have no idea what's going on and there's absolutely nothing to explain and i think that kept the audience in the dark as well so um I, again a few of my friends who have watched this again for the first time since the animation have said well what was Troughton playing at and I, I just say I think he was he was learning his role but it works if you if you now look at the entirety of um the Troughton era or at least you know first 10 stories or so it does work the fact that the doctor was suffering what I think we later described as post-regenerative regenerative oh my first word i found into i can't pronounce it properly michelle (laughs) you always used to help me out here regenerative no wrong regenerative don't don't come on you're always the most articulate one apart from post-regenerative i can't either it's your fault post-regenerative stress yeah you know basically a hangover from regenerating (laughs) right um but you know i I think it's very easy to retcon that into this story and uh, and for me it doesn't affect my enjoyment at all in fact it probably informs it a little bit rather than detracts and i uh yeah you know i've got no no real time for the view that Troughton um, deliberately tried something that actually didn't work and then switched it later. Well, and it's such a strong story with such strong characters. And as you say, the Daleks are fascinating that it works as an ensemble. Uh, You don't have to have the Doctor being a a character or personality that dominates this story. It all blends really well together um, to make for a fascinating story that you do want to keep listening to or watching. Yeah, Yeah, I thought the the other characters in the story besides the TARDIS crew were really interesting and um you know some stories you, you just watch and, and you know the doctor and the and the tardis crew are, are the ones you mainly focus on and sometimes the other extra characters are interesting sometimes they're not but this one like you said is more of an ensemble and you actually um are interested in the in the other characters that are around yeah i, I completely agree um i mean lesterson is uh is, is, is a voice I remember for some reason um, from uh, you know my early days as a fan listening to this story, and uh, you know it, it's great to see him actually on screen as well. And uh, it's it's 
like you say, most of the guest cast here or or, or the characters are, are quite well defined. They each have their own plot point to serve. Um, actually, they they just they, they serve their plot point and then generally die. Um, so it's it it starts off with quite a a high number of people to keep track of, but it you know diminishes <laughs> as the story uh, plays out. So um, I, I think the only thing that I didn't really buy is is the fact that there was you know vast numbers of people allegedly living on this base. You know that it's referred to a few times and. You know, it kind of get, makes the rebellion uh, when it happens feel a little lower key than I think we're supposed to uh, take from from those scenes. But but aside, aside from that, I, I'm I'm with you entirely. I, I don't think there's a really duff performance given from anyone. Yeah, I think it's quite fascinating that I did get wrapped up in a secondary story. You know, so when we have none of the TARDIS crew on the screen, it's still interesting to see the political manipulations happening and so you've got you know a story within a story and where Lesterton and his crew falls into the political intrigue I, you know again not knowing what I was getting into not knowing what to expect I I was drawn in I, I was uh yeah and especially I think this helps watching it with a little bit of space apart had I sat and watched all of it it may have felt a little drawn out um, because it, it almost feels like padding when you look at the story as a whole, but week to week, it definitely is quite engaging. Yeah, no, it was a deliberate decision, I think. It, it was intentional. Um, but it was such a departure. It was a gamble. I mean, if you look at the the, the stories that preceded this, you've got The Smugglers and Tenth Planet, and again, with, from, with the exception of one episode from The Tenth Planet, it's all, it's all around the Doctor, it's all around the companions. You know, the periphery characters are given lines just to support... The actions of of others who we're, we're familiar with, and there's this deliberate move away to show scenes sometimes with just two or three characters who are you know we're never going to see again after this story you know and, and that I thought was quite brave. Um, you, you bring back the Daleks and try and get them to play second fiddle to the fact that the lead character has changed <laughs> and then you play scenes out without a doctor, without the companions, without the Daleks. And it still works. Um, and that, for me, is part of the beauty of this story. Can I say something about uh, sort of what you just said? And this goes a little bit to a, what we were discussing earlier about Troughton's performance. If you have never watched Doctor Who, in this story, the Doctor actually seems to be the antagonist early on. That shrouded in mystery, you sort of feel for his companions, and you don't know what's going on. But he says that the Daleks are evil but we don't get to see that evidence. Now, of course, as fans or anyone who's watched the show knows, the Doctor's the good guy, the dogs are the bad guy, but the story essentially flips that narrative. Yeah. And we don't essentially see that evidenced in the first two episodes. It's not until we sort of get that potential menace um, when the Daleks get their power and the Doctor starts to kind of jump into the foreground in, in doing some heroic actions. And I think that's also quite engaging because it also plays on you don't know who is involved with what in the Vulcan community. Hmm. So they, they the Whitaker's script is um, there's a lot of depth to it. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some dramatic tension from what you describe. I would probably disagree with just one element of that, and that's the fact where you said that the audience knows that the Doctor is good. They you know they can take their um, you know, the, the reassurance, if you like, that everything's okay from the fact that the Doctor's on screen. They'd never seen a regeneration. 
they, they, they had no idea that this was actually still the same man. And I think that's why a lot of the dialogue um, is, is deliberately ambiguous. It is to try and create that complete air of uncertainty. But I think as a viewer, you would be saying, what is going on? Um, you know, I think there is some dialogue in there from Ben, if I recall, um, about him being the doctor and being fairly confident. But it sounds as though he's trying to convince himself rather than anyone else. So I do wonder whether or not that um, I do I do wonder whether or not that assurance was really there with the viewers. I think they were scratching their heads as well. And it's only, I think, perhaps towards episode three or episode four uh, when you start thinking, no, okay, he's starting to take control of events now. He's orchestrating, um, the, or he's trying to manipulate almost what people do when you start thinking, yeah, there's some familiar grounds here. And perhaps that's, I'm coming at it as a fan who has hindsight, knowing that, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, that can get easily confused. Um, but the fact that he has, you know, there's a scene where he pulls out uh, a dagger or they test the ring on him and the fact that they give us these little snippets of mm. action to, to maybe uh, sow some seeds of doubt it's a good story I, I'm, I'm actually having watched it a couple of times I, I find myself interested in potentially watching it again maybe in color this time yeah yeah or or try the reconstruction I, I've always been a fan of the reconstructions and I know some people are and some people aren't but I was trying to again it's been a while but you were talking about Lesterson and uh, I think he works well and his his kind of character arc works well in any medium but I almost feel like I was more mm, more affected by his kind of descent into insanity in the first when I saw it on the reconstruction than I was with the animation. Now, maybe that's because it was hitting me for the first time in that other format, but... Um, um, I felt that way, yeah, too. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, try the reconstruction. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel that maybe the animation, while it's functional, you don't get any of the really excellent physicality as far as the actors are concerned. You can tell just from Lesterson's voice, he's, he's an actor that definitely thought out this part and, and where his arc is going to go from, you know being very much in control to losing control to having just just be gone. And and you know what the animation may get in the way a little bit of the performance with something like that because if you are just hearing the voice and the emotion in the voice and maybe filling in a little bit in your mind's eye that may come across <clears throat> even more uh, powerfully than watching the animation which I think when it comes to the humans is somewhat limited. Um, yeah. I, I really I loved I loved the settings and the landscapes and the dialects. I, I you know was on board completely with that with the animation. I do struggle, and I know I know there are constraints of budget and time, but I do struggle with the way the human beings come across in this style of animation. It's a bit clunky, especially when the camera pans out and you get full body shots. They do a fairly decent amount when uh, it's, it's a decent job when you're up close. But as soon as it pans out and you can see them from the legs up, uh, the movement is is clunky. Yeah, I mean it's it's just different, isn't it? I, I think it, it is, and it's very different to watching actual actors on screen. And I, I think the only way you can be incredibly disappointed is if you really come to this thinking it's going to be, you know, almost in exactly the same experience as watching a live action story. And uh, you know, 
animation always takes something away, no matter how good it is. And I mean, I, have you seen any of the previous um, Second Doctor stories that have been animated? I mean, do you, do you feel this suffers by comparison? If if you have, I can't really tell a difference. Mm, I, I, I know they're yeah they're they're a little different. I think they're uh, you know some of them were done by different companies, but overall yeah. they sort of look the same to me. Yeah, I, I think there's been a number of companies actually have had a crack at this, and then various ones have either been taken over or gone out of business. But um, it's th- there is a lot of discussion about technique or animation technique, and, and personally, to me, as I said, I, like I said earlier, it, it's it's all uh, shades of grey. If you <laughs> forgive the pun, <laughs> but it's uh, it's it, it just kind of um, it, it it's never going to be perfect for me. Um, but I, I think this is as close as an animation can come to being a really good way of watching a story. And, and I think you just have to accept, as you say, you have to go into it knowing you're entering that world and that style. Mm. Um, it's not, I'm not that enchanted with that particular style uh, because of the, the blockiness. And yet I, I really, really appreciate being able to see these stories in this way. And so I don't want to criticize it in that sense. And I love the fact that this was sort of event television, the way this was presented here, at least on BBC America, and the, the weekly releases, or getting to see it in a movie theater. Either of those is really cool and pretty out of the ordinary, uh, particularly for a black and white episode that doesn't exist anymore mm. in its entirety. So, so, you know, the whole surrounding feel of it I, I really appreciated it and, and I do I do I think as I watched episode to episode the the animation yeah I became more used to it and and there are a couple things you know the the dark shadows under the eyes and sometimes on the chin um it's just a little too too much for me and and I find that distracting I wish they had just lightened I mean that's not a style of animation so much as just choices I think and in how much you're going to tint it, but um, but those are niggles, and mostly it was really great to be able to see it this way. Um, I did watch the last episode in color as it happened. I watched the first five in black and white, and when I went back to watch the last one, I noticed in my queue that I had the color episodes, and I thought, well, we'll we'll see. Um, and as much as the purist in me says, well, you should watch this in black and white, I actually really like the color, and I think I found the color maybe more effective for me because some of those stark contra- contrasts were not as as evident and the daleks were gorgeous in color I and mean, there were i don't know if i i didn't notice it so much in black and white but you could see reflections on the dalek casings of um whatever else was in the room i mean it was just mm. it, it was beautiful i thought the color was done really well um someday i'll have to probably watch all six episodes in color well, that gives me hope <laughs> <laughs> i had a question for everybody uh I wonder how much of this um, is described in the actual script and how much was sort of dramatic licensed by the producers of the animation. Like, for example, uh, in the beginning, the doctor is about to shake the hands with the uh, shake hands with the examiner and the examiner is shot. But the doctor still has his hand stuck out, (laughs) which is sort of a comedy thing for Troughton to do. But I wonder if that actually happened on screen or if that was just something the animators threw in on their own because they knew how he played the role. Or maybe cast and crew contributed by telling them stories about what happened on set. I don't know. I, I have a feeling that they used the 
and I'm going to get this wrong. It's either the camera or the shooting scripts. It's basically the the the, the final version um, of the scripts. But again, it's been a while since I actually read the article about this. And I, as Michelle will remember, I don't really remember last week. And um, <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I I I I read this ages ago when it originally came out. But I I would suspect it would have been the scripts, the tally snaps, those that they had available. And um, poss- possibly even mixed with some of the experiences um, that have been reported over the years, um, but uh, I, I, I again, it's a, it's a fascinating concept, um, you know, because of course a lot of the acting could well have been, well, almost certainly was uh, non-verbal, and what what license do they take? Um, because it is there is a point where artistic license becomes a uh, heresy and i just wondered how um <laughs> I, I wondered how how far they went yeah it's a good question I have to find out <clears throat> and i actually specifically wanted to know if you know at the end when the the very final scene when the eye stalk on the dalek moves after after they think it's dead was that in the i couldn't remember if i had seen that in in anything I've read or watched oh, before, yeah, I think that's, or listened to, that's in the that's definitely in the original. I'm sure, I'm sure it is. I mean, that's too big a thing not to, or, or just to include for this version. But um, yeah, I was just curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've I've not seen um, the DVD. As I said, I bought it on online, and uh, the Blu-ray's coming. Um, as I said, probably in a couple of weeks' time. And I'm just wondering whether or not there are any extra features on here or value-added material, as we're supposed to call it now. And I'm I'm not not sure whether or not there is. Again, you know, because I'm so out of touch with what's going on. There is. Kind of there is. Is there? Okay. Yeah. I wonder if this will be addressed in that then, perhaps. Well, they're actually uh, when I saw it at the at the uh, theater, after it was over, they actually showed a couple of the featurettes. I don't know if it was the entire featurette that's going to be on the DVD, but I know that they at least they showed some of what was going to be on the DVD. Um, they showed one featurette called Destination Vulcan. Uh, right. Had Toby Haydock, had uh, Rob Shearman, Nick Briggs, Annika Wills, and uh, a couple of the guys that worked. Uh, on the crew and then they had another one uh, with toby with the animation team doing like a commentary so i think both groups are doing a commentary on the dvd and there was a little behind the scenes of them in the studio watching the footage and uh you know interviews and that kind of thing great great i received the uh the disc in the mail a couple days ago and haven't got a chance to to go through the entirety of it but there are special features menus and I've watched one documentary on there that um, just sort of talks about its effect and what it was like. And, and Annika Wills plays pretty heavy on, in that. And so she gets a lot of interviews and talks about what it was like to be filming it and what it's like to be seeing it now animated. It's quite quite fascinating. Very short film, like maybe 10, 15 minutes. Sure. Um, I got a chance to play with the, the special features maybe later on this week when we get some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she was always uh, a very interesting individual to listen to and uh, I, I think she kind of um, she's one of these individuals one of these actors who kind of relive the experience as she's telling you the anecdote and I um, I interviewed her a couple of times many years ago she was actually my first ever interviewee uh, for the DWP ages ago uh, and I interviewed her around Roger Lloyd Pack's house <laughs> which she was staying in whilst he was off up in um, Norfolk somewhere performing um, and I remember just sitting in sitting in her kitchen being very very worried and she has this intensity about her um and i I wasn't too certain because i was very nervous at the time you know not knowing how to speak to one of my childhood heroes at all and uh 
she just kind of looked at me um, and I thought it was intensity, but I think it was just with growing curiosity as to <laughs> what, what, why she had agreed to speak to me. But when she did get round to describing, um, you know, the experience, particularly towards the end of the 10th planet and towards the end of William Hartnell's era um, and and then kind of explaining, you know, what it was like to go through the transition from one actor to the other. Um, it, you, you could tell just through her body language and the way that she was moving. She went, she was quite tense when she was describing working with William Hartnell. And then it was like her shoulders dropped when she talked about Patrick Troughton. And her, I remember, I remember her face, you know, discernibly or noticeably changing uh, when she was talking about him. But yeah, it, it, she's a fascinating individual to listen to. Um, and, and her books are interesting as well. We're going to have a small clip uh, interview with her at the end of this program. We're going we're gonna to add on to it that I recorded at Long Island Who this past year. Mm. And I know exactly what you mean, James, when you're, you're talking about her physicality when she speaks. I, um, uh, one of the beautiful things about Long Island Who is if you get up early enough in the morning and head down to the uh, the cafeteria, you can essentially sometimes have breakfast with these yeah. folks. And so um, by the end of the con, we were making sure it was a point to have uh, breakfast and tea with Annika pretty much every day. <laughs> and uh, you're absolutely right. She's a phenomenal storyteller, and mm. there's so much movement in the way she describes things. It's, it's quite a, a joy to kind of be in that presence. She's really great, uh, personable person I, I met her last year at regeneration who and and i went by her table and i you know said hello and she said are you enjoying the convention so far i said yes ma'am i am and she said did you hear that he said yes ma'am i must be in america <laughs> she was really sweet uh, she is so um, so the three of us have spoken to her. michelle have you spoken to her yet no, I, I've yeah. heard her at some conventions, but uh, I hadn't speak, haven't spoken to her personally. No, well, she, she is interesting. There's, there's actually quite a few um, members of the Doctor Who fraternity who, who do speak to you far more through their physicality than, than words. And um, she, she's certainly one of them. And uh, I, I, I find her recollect either that or she's incredibly convincing. I just don't know which of the two it is. I mean, she is an actress <laughs> after all. But, you know, the, the, the way that she describes some of the detail and the way that she um, mimics, you know, some facial expressions when she was talking about Hartnell for so I, I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal to watch. And uh, I, I don't really mind whether or not it is a performance on her part or whether or not it is genuine. And uh, I, I just sit there and, um, and watch. And again, yeah, I've, I've been to Gallifrey a few times. I know um, I know Michelle has and the breakfast maxim applies for most American conventions uh, if you get up early enough you'll end up having breakfast or your cornflakes with um, some of your childhood heroes and uh, certainly remember Peter Purvis um, who, who was another one who who joined us for, for, for breakfast at Gallifrey and um, I, I remember him being well his his physicality really betrayed um, a genuine terror I think of Doctor Who fans um, until he's decided <laughs> that you're relatively sane can hold a coherent conversation and wash every now and again and uh, he's uh, he was just a fascinating individual and um, that that particular era is rich with companions who are still active on the convention circuits how do we all feel about uh Michael Craze as Ben, or just Ben as a character in general. We hadn't talked much about him. No, you're right. <laughs> um, I, I like him. I like him. I, I, it, to me, he felt like a little bit angry most of the episode, <laughs> but I think he was sort of conflicted between, you know, is this really my doctor or is it not, and should we trust him? Um, but he had some light moments. There was um, 
the one part, which is one of the few jokes in this story. It was kind of dark. Uh, when he met the governor and said governor, and then he paused, and he was like, oh, yeah, he has a governor. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was good. I, I like him. I, I, I think he's, some of his lines are quite good, and I think he was the natural source um, of humor, certainly during Hartnell's final few stories, because the writers didn't give a great deal of comedic lines to to the doctor um but on the whole i mean i know it sounds a really weird thing to do but i always kind of bracket him with ace um i.e really unconvincing cockneys and uh it's just the way that they do not really convince you they are from the east end of london um and again the 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 anger that you talk about and i i I appreciate that i think you're right there's there's usually quite a lot of frustration emanating from from both those characters i think i just don't think it's particularly convincing um i don't don't dislike the portrayal um and i like the fact there are so few stories to sit there and examine um the dynamic between the doctor and um and and ben especially given that he he did bridge the gap between the first and second doctor but on the whole, there isn't really a great deal you can say about Ben, can't you? I mean, I, th- I think that's probably demonstrated as well, given the fact that they shared or gave half his lines to Fraser Hines. Um, you know, as from the next story, um, it was just a case of saying, well, we don't really need to try and make any real effort with this this character. And, uh, you know. I think it was telling that when you asked what we thought of him, there was silence. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't dislike Ben, but he's never captured my imagination either. Um so yeah, he's 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 kind of okay. <laughs> I think it 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 hurts that we you know it hurts everyone's uh, expectations of the character that we just don't have enough stories to mm-hmm. to judge. Like like James was saying, um, I I really like Polly's character, mm-hmm. but I feel like she's given more to do that separates uh, individual aspects of her character. Um, and in this story, he is just sort of the angry guy who is very protective of Polly. I mean, I think yeah. that's... Well, and, and I think he's voicing some of the concerns that the audience may have about who is this guy? Is he the right. doctor? Should we trust him? And so he, he you know, he plays a, definitely a role in terms of point of view and, and, and keeping the tension there. But um, I haven't warmed up to him fully as, as a character in his own right. He's the action man, essentially, isn't he? Yes. I mean, and he, he, he does exactly what Stephen did before him and what Ian did before Stephen. And... You know, if there was any kind of physicality or any kind of fights, then that's that's what the character would be used for. But I think that version of the companion got diluted um, through the, that particular role's regeneration. Um, you know, Ian through Stephen to Ben, and again, it only was really picked up and really tackled with some gusto and put some you know, some some real creativity put into that role um, once Fraser Hines had an opportunity to get his teeth into it. So I think that's possibly why. And it is strange, isn't it, how we don't talk about Ben very much? Because, I mean, can, can you count perhaps, what, on one hand, the number of companions who have spanned Doctors? It's not many, is it? It's not a huge no. number of uh, mm-hmm. companions. I think it's interesting too in the characterization um, that Ben is not so much critical but sus- um, suspicious of this character who is supposed to be the Doctor up until the fact that when Polly is kidnapped and disappears, then he he starts to turn to the Doctor a little bit more to help him and even the Doctor isn't willing, he sort of goes off on his own, but he's there's this moment where he's willing to accept that Doctor's help if it means helping Polly. 
Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think that's because Ben and Polly are a pairing. I mean, you don't usually say Ben without and Polly afterwards. Right. And the, the, the pair of them kind of a, a single companion, a little bit like Jedward, which um, the, the, the UK <laughs> listeners will know what I mean, but... You probably haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. Um, it's, a, it's a bit like a, a couple of presenters. <laughs> no, no change there. No change there, no. <laughs> you, you know, you must have some game shows or some kind of reality shows that are presented by two presenters who simply are never seen away from each other. And again, in the UK, what we would tend to do is is merge their Christian names. You know, something like... Oh, I'm trying to think of... A, no, we give a, it... It's Portmanteau, like Bradgelina, right? But like, yeah. I get... Thank you. Um, I don't watch a lot of game shows, so I'm a, uh, a little... Uh, <laughs> no, and it's a very strange metaphor to, to go into detail to explain, so I apologise for that. But it's uh, but it, the point is, is, is they're essentially a gestural entity, really. Um, and I'm not sure whether or not you had... I mean, I suppose you had Ian and Barbara, but again, they're... Their characters were so different and they complemented each other. You couldn't just say that they were a homogenous pair in the same way that Ben and Polly are. Um, yeah, I can't think of anyone else who you could actually compare to the Ben and Polly pairing. No, it's a, it's an interesting insight on that too because, again, not having a lot of information, um, I haven't actually read many of the stories where they're the companions as well. Mm. And so I, I couldn't really tell you much about their individual characteristics well war machines is by far and away the strongest i think is where they both come into it together and again that's another factor they both come into this um they both come into doctor who together and they leave doctor who together it's 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 another um another thing that kind of just makes you think of them as a pairing uh but the war machines you can see i think what the intention was um you know and, and as soon as they left that story they kind of lost any kind of real sense of identity or uniqueness i feel there are some changes things they've added and when brent was asking about the handshake and keeping the hand out potential changes to the script there are some things that uh the animators have added into the story as easter eggs and i'm kind of curious just to get everyone's thoughts of retroactively adding something in and there's three things that that were in there, and I looked it up and I went back and watched them. Um, there is during the story a logo for Magpie Electronics. I saw that. Right? I saw that, and I I didn't realize that was. I my thought was, boy, that's interesting. I didn't realize that that had been a thing before. So you, so it was added after the fact as a reference. It was added after the fact, so we get a little idiot's lantern. Um, uh, hmm. I, I this one was a little harder to find, but. Um, the Wayland Utani logo from the Aliens franchise is is snuck in there. Oh, um, I saw that in one in one scene. I thought I was seeing things, but yeah, I saw yeah. that. Yeah, yep, yep. And um, apparently, on one of the notice boards, and I didn't see this, but apparently, on one of the notice boards, Bad Wolf can be seen. <laughs> uh, so, well. <laughs> I'm curious to see your thoughts on retroactively adding something. Oh, they have to stick From- rose into everything, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll be very keen uh, for an email pointing out exactly the points of which <laughs> the, the, um, the, the, the uh, insertions you're referring to actually feature, because I didn't notice any of them at all. You know, in, in something hmm. like this, I, and this is just a knee-jerk reaction, I think I would prefer they not do that, um, where we are having a chance to see 
an old episode that we'll probably never see in its original form, I think I would land on the side of staying as true to the original as could be. Now, the magpie example, which is the only one I caught of those three things, um, I think I could argue that it took me out of the story a little because I did do that little 10 or 15 second thought of, gee, Magpie Electronics, that's from the new series. I wonder if the new series got it from the old series. Did Russell T. Davis know that it had appeared in Power of the Daleks? And and so, you know, in the 10 or 15 <laughs> well, seconds I've been thinking about that, clearly it's the opposite around. I very much doubt um, there's going to be a, um, a 1960s store um, selling televisions on Vulcan. But you never know. You never know. <laughs> well, no. Yeah, it could have happened the other way around, though, where, where you know, one of the modern show writers oh, I knew see. that this had, you know. So yeah, true. I guess I guess that didn't enhance my experience any and may have distracted me just a slight bit. But, um, I mean, it's not like something you'd lose sleep over. You know what distracted me? And it had nothing to do with anyone retconning anything. But the fact that every time they called, they were using a phone that had one of those curly cords and I just haven't seen one in so long that it, and I found myself watching the animation of the cord and watching how they moved it and going, man, I'm glad we don't have those anymore. Okay. Uh, that, that passed me by, uh, too, <laughs> but, uh, I, I guess, you know, there's going to be stuff that dates any kind of sixties sci-fi or indeed seventies or eighties, um, I watched um, I watched Goldeneye for the first time the other day, and uh, there is some real, you know, um, what was at the time state of the art computers, which are about the size of a small building uh, compared to you know <laughs> contemporary machines. Uh, but I, I think there's always going to be some technology that uh, is 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 going to jar a little. Um, but but in in terms of the Easter eggs you were referring to, I I, I think. Um, well, for me, I, I, I'm really unobservant at the best of times. And uh, I think even if I had noticed those, I think my sense of... Um, I think I'd have been so pleased with myself for actually picking up something so subtle, <laughs> I wouldn't have cared very much as to whether or not it added or detracted from the story, to be honest. <laughs> I feel like um, as modern viewers, we've been trained by Moffat to, to look for little details. I feel like we're, it's almost ruined my experience that I feel like I have to nitpick oh. everything just in case it comes back later, um, that mm. I'm throwing that kind of eye for observation into all Doctor Who that I watch. Well, it, it worked this time, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. You, you know, one thing that, that I noticed this time around, um, when I started watching this on television on broadcast uh, at the beginning of any TV show here. I don't know if they do this in, in the UK or not, but they they superimpose the, the rating, you know, whether it's parental guidance, guidance advised or, you know, is it is it good for all audiences? There's, there's a, a little logo that we have. And this one flashed TV PG, which means they recommend parental guidance. And then underneath that, it said V, which is for violence, because it always tells you whether it's violence or language or, or whatever. Um, and I... I was surprised to see that in a Doctor Who episode. Yeah, I still, I mean, even though they're a family show, I tend to think, you know, with kids and stuff, I thought, wow, I wouldn't have expected Doctor Who back in the 60s to get a rating that here in, you know, in 2016, 2017, we would consider particularly violent. And, and, and so yeah. I, I thought, that's odd. But then as we watched through, when it came to that last episode, I was 
surprised and I hadn't remembered or been affected by just how horrific it is. I mean, the the screams and the gunfire as the Daleks are finally exterminating the the colonists, it it was pretty harrowing. Um, and it I, I don't know if it came across more strongly in an animated version than it did in a reconstruction or something. But um, yeah, I was thinking, man, if I did have young kids in the room, I guess I would worry about that. Yeah, that but, last uh, shot at the end where it's ugh. like a long shot of all the bodies. Of on the corpses? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that was that was struck me as well. And And one thing that I wanted to add to this in that same episode, there is a colonist holding a crying baby. Yeah. And that's just pulled me right out of the story, but actually put me in at the same time, like thinking, this is horrific. Way yeah. to up the stakes. Because one of the things that we know about Doctor Who is, if there's a child on the screen, chances are things are going to be okay, right? Because like, we're not going to yeah. hurt children yeah, in a children's show. But the wholesale slaughter of the Vulcan colony is emphasized by the fact that there is someone running away holding a newborn, an infant, and uh, that really made it feel grave. It was kind of cool. I, it was like, bravo, Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, just just when you said um, certainly about there you know, being a sense of reassurance, everything's going to be okay when there's a baby or a child on screen. Do you remember the end of The Rebel Flesh where they <laughs> moff at, <laughs> what's the word, I suppose, pulverized or... Um, no, I don't know what the right word is, but liquefied uh, Amy's baby. I remember being shocked oh. at that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That that was that was much more horrific than this, I have to say. But but I think certainly the sense of gravitas, or at least the attempt to try and convey the fact that it's a horrific situation was uh, addressed very rarely um, in in the older stories and uh, yeah I, I once again because of my already mentioned really poor observation skills I hadn't noticed that but I'm not surprised because um, some some of those old stories you know they they kind of reflected things um, that modern television was showing at the time. And I don't think people had as much sensibility, certainly in the UK, um, back in the 60s and 70s, um, than they than they do now. Uh, and indeed, even when I start watching a whole load of other UK television, there's, there's some lines that are said that simply wouldn't be said now. Um, and there's depic- depictions of situations that we would now find very uncomfortable, just played almost as a second plot strand um, in, in some of those stories. But I think they just, you know, he's a sign of the times. Um, and I'm glad, to be fair, that the animators didn't shy away from that because I suppose they would have had the opportunity to remove it if they felt it con- conveyed or showed too much horror. Um, but uh, but no, they, they certainly don't try and put any of those ratings, Michelle, on uh, TV um, programs at all here before broadcast it's limited purely to the dvds and uh, blu-rays and if you go to the cinema then it requires uh, a certificate um, but otherwise it's just you know you just watch it <laughs> well it was interesting it's it surprised me but uh, and yeah i think that may be another thing that lends this story credibility is the degree to which the danger is real and you and you find you know the doctor's been warning him all along people been ignoring him all along and indeed unfortunately it happens and it happens in a horrific way it really does which actually made you know the very last bit where they're headed for the TARDIS and they're being a little bit jokey and a little bit lighthearted um 
graded a little bit for me this time on this viewing because of the horror of what we'd just seen. <laughs> mm. But at uh, any rate. That last scene is also interesting, too, because you have the, the kind of the burned out husk of the Dalek right next to the TARDIS. And it feels like there's a story there. Hmm. Were, were the Daleks investigating the TARDIS? Why is it so far out from the rest of the colony to have a, been examining that part of the area? You know, like, that's not explained. This is a, like, w- we know it, why it blows up, but um, <laughs> it's interesting to think, like, what was going on. Because the Daleks were definitely very scheming uh, in this one. Hmm. I think it was probably there because it looked good at the end to have a Dalek next to a TARDIS. You got two icons together. I, I doubt whether there was any real well thought out plot, but, <laughs> but and I think you're absolutely correct with that too. But it, it's still it's you know it gets the the wheels turning because yeah. there's um I think it's Ben who actually says this when the Dalek first shows up and kind of rolls down off of the steps and looks to the Doctor and the Doctor has that sort of uh, Barbara flattening against the wall uh, look of terror. It, ben says it recognizes the doctor, um, which is an interesting thing to say. Uh, it certainly <laughs> opens a lot more questions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to... We could talk about how sneaky the Daleks are um, and the Daleks catching themselves. You know, the, I am your servant. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, when they... there's a There's a moment where they talk about how humans are greater than the Daleks and, and like, the Dalek has to stop itself from correcting them and you could tell like it was it really pains the Dalek to have to admit <laughs> or have to change what it was going to say like I like sneaky Daleks like Whitaker's Daleks are quite a lot more engaging than mm. I think almost anything hey Drew how, how do you think this compares to uh, Victory of the Daleks which is sort of similar I don't think anyone wants to compare Victory of the Daleks <laughs> to anything um, but but having seen this, I sort of get where Gatiss was going, and I have a little bit more appreciation for it, because having not been familiar with the story, I didn't get the homage aspect of it. So yes, I appreciate the homage aspect of that story, and there's a couple of things I like about Victory of the Daleks, but um, on the whole... I'd rather not think about it. <laughs> no, I would agree. I would agree, but it's uh, it, it it certainly did pay homage to this story, no question. Um, certainly with the uh, with a cup of tea and the servants and that kind of stuff, which is all very nice, but certainly didn't make a story. Um, I mean, you mentioned there are a couple of things that you liked about uh, Victory of the Daleks. I'm assuming the end credits was one of them, um, but uh, <laughs> what was what was the other? <laughs> Um, so I actually really like the visual idea of those planes flying in space. Um, <laughs> right. I just don't like how quickly <laughs> it went from they can't do it to we can do it and we know how to fly in space. Like yeah. I, I like the the con- there's a lot of good concepts. I think the execution of that story was. Um, a little cringeworthy, but oh, I, I really I, don't want to turn this to a victory of the Daleks podcast. No, no, the white, but it's, it's strange though, isn't it? Because I think you'll find again, most people who really do enjoy Doctor Who or even, you know, just enjoy watching it every now and again um, and have an appreciation for each era will really, really like power of Daleks. I think that's, that's true. There may be a few people who dislike it. Fair enough. But, to have the kind of vitriol directed at Victory, which is a story that simply wouldn't exist in its current form had it not been for Power of the Daleks, 
I just find it incredible. I mean, it's it's such a, uh, it, it it's just such a contradiction that entire that entire episode from you know the poor direction. Um, but yeah, I'm sitting here grinning, you know, like a lunatic really when I when I recognise these um, lines from from Power. So yeah. Stay tuned after the episode for a short interview with Annika Wills, recorded at Long Island Who 4 in November of 2016. Well, guys, thanks for being on today. It was really great having you back in here. And uh, loved hearing your voices again. It's been so long. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. Well, thank you very much for inviting us. And uh, now that you've done it, I'm certain you won't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Hey, best wishes to you guys with Who and Company. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We appreciate your spending some time with us. It's always nice to be in the presence of good company. And us as well. So great stuff. <laughs> we, 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 we have felt most welcome. We have. Oh, <laughs> excellent, excellent. Thanks for joining us for Who and Company. Come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. You can download the podcast directly from whoandcompany.lipson.com. You can also contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. A special shout-out to PixelWho for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. See you next month. So this is very exciting, and I'm going to be talking, and then sometimes I go, what? No, and that doesn't matter. Oh, look, there you are. You know that I'm not going to edit those parts out. <laughs> no, no, don't. <laughs> you see, and there's my laughter, so that's not going to break the box. No, no. Okay. So uh, um, our guest today is the extremely personable Miss Annika Wills. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for you. Um, so, listen, let's talk about Power of the Daleks, <gasps> shall we? Because I know you're very excited about, about this. Power of the Daleks. It's, it's, it's so thrilling, actually, because it, it is, of course, the most important story. The most important story of you all. You hear it here first. Yeah, because without the story, we wouldn't be sitting here today talking about it. Because this was the moment when, when Patrick Trotton took over for the very first time. I'm telling the story again, um, which you all know anyway, I know. Um, but, ah, and so for me to be there, how amazing that was for me to be there. Um, at the time, um, I know that Michael Craze and I, we didn't even know if we were going to be in work at the end of the summer, you know, right. because if it wasn't going to work, or they were going to, they were going to let it die, or they were going to, or were they going to have another completely different actor, or were they going to get a Bill Hartley lookalike? We didn't know. Everything was up for grabs. And bottom line, you're an actor, and you just think, "Oh, I hope we're going to be in work." You know? Sure. Well, yeah. Speaking of which, when you take that part, well, a couple things first. Okay. When you when you take the part, how much of that character is you? Oh, it's nearly all me. Oh, it's all. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in a way, because I was lucky, because at that time in the BBC, there was this sort of group of us who had been working. I'd been working for fifteen years since I was a young child. Um, and this was, as it were, a live telling. 
So, because we weren't recording anything. So, you know, you did, it was like being in rep. You did your play. And when I first started, you, you did your play two times a week. You did mm -hmm. it on a Thursday, and then you went back in the studio, and you did it again on the Sunday. Um, and the other thing was that the cameras were huge and heavy and difficult. They could only move in certain directions. Um, so you had a whole lot on one side, one or two on the other side, and they had their movements. And then you had all the cables all over the floor, and then you had your little marks in silver where you had to hit to make sure, otherwise you wouldn't be there. And then you had, on top of that, you had the Daleks, you know, right. with their big skirts. So it was actually a technical feat. Mm. So there was this group of actors, those of us, who could do this, you know, and they could trust that you wouldn't throw a wobbly on live on the screen and go, oh, I you are boss. <laughs> so I was one of them. And so then when Polly was written as a swinging 60s, chick with eyelashes longer than my skirt, you know, immediately my name would come up. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, there's only one person for that job. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, uh, I'm, 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 you have uh, an interview on Monday, right? Yes. So in, in, yes, in a couple of days, yes. specifically about the power of dogs yes. release. Yes. That's pretty fantastic. I know. And you know what was brilliant last week in London? Because um, we did we did radio, we did, we did press releases and everything. Um, and what was absolutely brilliant was that in the moment, on Saturday, 5.35, to the minute, it was sent out around the world. Now, this is technology and brilliant. And I have to say, I absolutely know that Patrick was sitting up on his cloud, chuckling away. <laughs> he was so pleased. The, this, um, this episode is going to be released in movie theaters. I, mean, I can go. I can't go, unfortunately, because in the states it's going to be on Monday, and I'm driving home from this convention on Monday. Right. But have you seen it on on a big screen yet? I've seen it on a big screen. I haven't seen the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, we saw. I mean, literally, we we were doing a commentary last week, Wednesday. Um, we were doing a commentary, and we didn't have it all. It, mm -hmm. it still wasn't finished. They were working up to the wire. These guys. I mean, the main guy, Charles Norton, is the main guy. He was a young man when he started. <laughs> He's now a sort of old, you know, eccentric, crumbling. You know, he needs a break. He needs a rest. If if we're going to do some more, but um, so so I, so, and then we did. Um, I did radio all over England, and then the next day we had it at the British Film Institute, and we saw two more episodes right. with Stephen Moffat. He came because he couldn't miss it. He right. wanted to see that. Um, so I haven't seen the whole thing, but I have to tell you. What is absolutely astounding is the sound, because it's wraparound sound, right. and the Daleks are frightening, man. They're frightening. You can't <laughs> believe all over again that, oh, this is so spooky and they're so, when they're so still, you know, after all these years. I mean, they, were, they weren't frightening at the time, because, as I say, you're, you're busy trying not to trip over the wires and them. Right. You know, so, but now... Mm -hmm. They are spooky all over again. It's wonderful that you get to, in in many ways, you were a part of this. So you, from someone behind the scenes, you get you get to experience in a way that the audience doesn't. Yes. And then you probably watched it when it came out, right? Did you? No, we did didn't. You, you didn't watch no, the episodes. I never saw any of our episodes. 
episode because at that time we were recording the next, the, the next episode when that one was going out. So I never saw. I never saw. Later on, they they changed that and they could see them. But I, so I never saw any of the any of the footage at all. It wasn't until about twenty years ago when they caught up with me that mm-hmm. I saw the first the war machines the first time after all those years. Wow! Yeah. that's that's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that. You get to come and you get to share this experience with us. I'm glad that you're going to get a chance to re... I mean, you're watching it for the first time along with the audiences, right? The animated theory is totally new and exciting. And I'm glad that we get a chance to spend some time with you here at Long Island, too. Oh, well, it's lovely to talk to you. Absolutely, absolutely. talk to you about it because it's my favorite subject. (laughs) Good. Well, I'm glad. We like talking about it, too. So thank you, Annika Wills, for being a part of our show today. Thank you so much. I'm sorry we can't talk more, but there I am, too. Well, we can off the mic. Doctor, look, if they're that dangerous, what are you going to do? about it. Save my breath. Would Lesterson listen? Lesterson listen. Lesterson listen. Lesterson listen. Exercise in the tongue. Try it. Lesterson listen. Look, they think you're the examiner. Order them to destroy the Daleks. What chuck you wait about? Let's just listen. Lesterson listen. Lesterson listen. Lesterson listen. Lesterson listen. Lesterson listen. Lesterson listen. What do you think you're doing in here? All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to Who and Company. Uh, this is where we say our tagline. <laughs> sure, if you want. <laughs> I'm assuming that Brenda's going to be heavily editing this first. Episode. I'm thinking what that man? line has to stay in. Oh, yeah. yeah. We'll throw that at the end.